Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Clinic Talks production. The simple solution for PM&R healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physiatrist and PM&R at Mayo Clinic. 450,000 Americans are living with spinal cord injury. There's 1,100 new cases in the U.S. every year. This is one of the groups of patients that gain a significant amount of benefit when treated by a physiatrist. Although, as a general physiatrist, I haven't seen a spinal cord injury patient in quite a while. Today, we are joined by Kristen Garlinger, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and a physiatrist in physical medicine and rehabilitation who specializes in spinal cord injury. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Jeff. We think about traumatic spinal cord injury, but we also are starting to see a lot more non-traumatic spinal cord injuries. What causes these? Well, there's several different um, etiologies that can cause non-traumatic spinal cord injuries, and I kind of bucket them into different categories, um, starting with uh, spinal cord tumors. Um, there can be uh, tumors that um, are primary spinal cord tumors uh, that affect the bone. I uh, think of things like chordomas, although uh, very uncommon. The, the things that are going to be more common in the, the realm of tumors would be metastatic tumors, so things uh, tumors coming from primary breast, lung, prostate. Um, and uh, then uh, you can also think of nerve sheath tumors. Those can be pretty common. Those are t- uh, typically um, within the spinal canal, but not necessarily um, uh, compressing on the spinal cord. So they actually have a pretty good prognosis. And then you have your um, intramedullary or um, uh, tumors that are um, within the spinal cord par- parenchyma. So that's one of the causes of non-traumatic spinal cord injury, and we actually see that common in our institution. Um, and so we have the opportunity to um, help rehabilitate them in the uh, on our rehabilitation unit. Um, other causes could be um, infectious things like bacterial or viral causes uh, to spinal cord injury. You can think of transverse myelitis, things like that. Um, HIV would be one, and it could be. Um, seen in certain populations and in certain institutions uh, based on their demographics, um, uh, bacterial infections from abscesses and so forth. Uh, so you can kind of think of the infectious category for non-traumatics. And then um, I also think about uh, the individual that undergoes a, a AAA repair and unfortunately develops ischemia to the spinal cord. So that's a, another cause of non-traumatic spinal cord injury is more of uh, the vascular causes. Um, and uh, so if you kind of think outside the traumatic box, I would think of tumor, infection, vascular causes. So there's obviously, a you know, when you think of traumatic spinal cord injury, you usually think of a young male. Yes. When you think of a non-traumatic spinal cord injury, who do you think of? Who is that population? So the non-traumatic, when I, uh, I, you know, I don't have that picture in my head of a young man for non-traumatics. And and it's kind of based on those um, uh, subcategories that I had just mentioned. So if it's an individual with uh, an ischemic cause to their spinal cord injury, I think of a little old man or old lady, (laughs) if you will. And they've unfortunately undergone... um, 
uh, a type of vascular surgery. And something that I didn't mention before, but um, is really important, uh, is that um, individuals that have severe arthritis uh, can develop a cervical myelopathy. Um, and so, so I think the point here is, uh, as we start thinking about non-traumatic, start thinking about the, um, the older uh, population of individuals. Um, and certainly that um, makes the rehabilitation process at least um, I guess more interesting or, or more dynamic as we're trying to troubleshoot several things related to um, uh, discharge and uh, that might not be as easy to troubleshoot as an individual that is younger and otherwise has no other comorbidities. Is there any difference in the rehab process or what we expect as an outcome between traumatic and non-traumatic spinal cord injury? Uh, so for non-traumatic I'm sorry so for traumatic spinal cord injuries um, there there have been several studies that have been done along the years to help um, with us um, our ability to predict outcomes and so uh, it's a it's a little more uh, easy to guide um, uh, the individual because of course they're going to ask what is um, if they haven't already, by the time they get to the rehabilitation unit, what is my chance of getting up and walking? What's my chance of getting home? And these are all important questions that uh, we can go back to the literature and give them percentages and being uh, be able to clinically answer those questions. And then um, we get to the non-traumatic population, and it's really um, a lot less research has been done in this field, and uh, really this is kind of um, an area, a robust area for if um, we want to find out those answers of uh, outcomes and predictions that research in this area would be uh, extremely helpful. The limited studies that have been done, incidence-type studies, have found that non-traumatics um, don't have as good of an outcome because of uh, um, things that I mentioned before, such as the age and the medical comorbidities of the older population that experience non-traumatic uh, injuries. And so, um, uh, for instance, if it's a, a vascular cause to their spinal cord injury, it's not on the matter of um, years and years and years. It's maybe about three years after their uh, vascular injury that results in a spinal cord injury that they uh, um, uh, that that's their lifespan. It's really just a couple of years. And so we should plan for that, really. Okay. Are you a physiatrist preparing for your upcoming PM&R Part 2 oral boards? Do you need to brush up on your examination skills? Through a combination of didactic lecture, case vignettes, optional mock oral examinations, and online modules, the PM&R board review course can help guide your preparation. This vital course will be held on the historic Mayo Clinic campus in downtown Rochester, Minnesota every spring just prior to the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation oral examinations. For complete course information and to receive an email when registration is open, visit ce.mayo.edu slash PMR. It seems like stem cells are proliferating in all areas of treatment right now. Is there a role for stem cells in the treatment of spinal cord injury? 
I do not have a perfect answer for that yet, Jeff. However, um, at Mayo Clinic, we are doing safety studies. Um, it's really to look to see after we inject an individual um, into the epidural space with stem cells, is there any effects that um, uh, would be negative and a reason to to not further explore this question. Um, it's a it's an ongoing research question, um, and I think um, the best place for it is in a research-type setting, although I do know that um, anecdotally when patients come in, they say that they know known others that have flown to this country or that country and have um, pursued stem cell injections. And um, I, I would just put caution to, um, to that, especially when individuals with spinal cord injury can be easily taken advantage of. We, we want to first think about the, their needs first. And um, if they're going to be paying out of pocket, it should be for things that are uh, for um, uh, their, their current level of function. Um, and, and, you know, have them look at um, websites such as clinicaltrials.gov because those are the types of trials that will have the legitimate stem cell study studies going on, um, and that that's that's all I really know about that subject. Fair enough. Recently, I read something about we're working on ways to assist spinal cord injury patients with ambulation. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, so I know a little bit about this topic in in that there are um, again several uh, types of uh, research going on for motor recovery after spinal cord injury. Some of the fancier ones you can think of, uh, such as um, the exoskeleton st- um, t- studies that look at using a device that. Um, is an external device on an individual's lower limbs and with the use of functional uh, electrical stimulation can also um, uh, help an individual to ambulate um, but uh, with the assistance of these devices. If they were to take off or turn off the device, they would not be able to um, ambulate. And it's at this point not something that... um, uh, I see a lot of patients using right now because um, they they can be quite expensive. Number one, they have to be trained on the use of this device at an institution that is um, has been. Uh, educated on how to train individuals, um, and there's only certain institutions across the country that have had the permission, basically, to train individuals on the use of exoskeletons. Um, and uh, and so again, they're they're heavy, they're expensive, they're heavy, and they need to be yet appropriately trained. Um, another interesting intervention that uh, I think is up and coming, and we've certainly found um, uh, very positive results from, is uh, epidural stimulation. And mm-hmm. there was a recent uh, paper um, published in Nature from our program regarding motor recovery um, at. I'm sorry, um, motor, uh, improved motor outcomes after epidural stimulation um, in that when the epidural stimulator is on um, in an individual with a complete spinal cord injury, they are able to volitionally move um, um, the lower limbs. And in one of our subjects, he was doing step over step um, motion uh, and then you turn the stimulator off and 
um, and they return to their baseline neurologic function. So there's a lot of really fun, interesting things in the pipeline. I, it's not uh, um, something that's in everybody's homes at this point with spinal cord injury. We still have a lot, a lot of work to do. Fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about someone who isn't at one of those big institutions. Technology is changing significantly in, for all of us. Mm-hmm. Are there technologies that help spinal cord injury patients in their home? Absolutely. So this is, I, I, um, I think that patients that have access to certain technologies um, really be, are able to be as independent as possible. What I'm talking about are certain environmental controls. So I'm sure we've all heard of like the Alexa that um, um, through uh, through different uh, companies and ways where you can say, hey, Alexa, um, turn on the lights. And so it's really um, that kind of technology that can be implemented into an individual's home can uh, help improve their efficiency, help them you know, even I'll go as far as, you know, uh, being able to return to work. If their day-to-day routine is um, as efficient as possible and they're as independent as possible, anything's possible for these individuals. And so I, I, I know the Alexa is a favorite of some of my patients. We actually have one, too. <laughs> now, I know one of your passions is adaptive sports. So what type of uh, sports do folks with spinal cord injury get involved with? Jeff, the answer is that is any sport that they want (laughs) to be involved in, they certainly, um, there's a way to adapt it. And um, uh, up in Minnesota, where um, hockey is a a loved sport, sled hockey is also in that category of adapt, uh, a way to adapt uh, hockey for an individual um, with spinal cord injury. and it doesn't stop there. It's just about any sport you can think of. Um, and I think what uh, I personally want to optimize is not just their involvement in sport, but in um, exercise too. So health and wellness. Um, and we're, we're actually think, uh, trying to find ways to make exercise fun for our patients. And I think that that goes across all boards of individuals with abilities and disabilities uh, to want to love exercise. And, you know, I know the high intensity interval training what it, um, has uh, gained a lot of momentum in and a lot of populations love that uh, s- sort of exercise prescription. And so um, uh, we're trying to implement that in our patient population with spinal cord injury. Um, number one, if it's if you can get a, a an exercise in within 15 minutes that can get up their heart rate, that can optimize their cardiovascular um, health and well-being, um, make it fun uh, fun for them, and preserve their shoulders, which are their new weight-bearing joint. You know, I think it's a win uh, across all boards to try to implement something like high-intensity interval training in in these individuals. So, so yes, sports, exercise, um, sky's the limit. You might even see um, extreme sports, uh, extreme adaptive sports, um, which uh, so uh, the CrossFit, there's extreme CrossFit. There's there's anything you could think of, because, again, remember, if you think back to the um, young male who 
um, is a thrill seeker who ends up getting a spinal cord injury. It's the injury itself is not going to stop them. They're going to want to find out what, you know, what else is available out there for them. And I, I want to be part of that. We've been talking about spinal cord injury with Dr. Kristen Garlinger, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and a physiatrist in physical medicine and rehabilitation and one of our spinal cord injury specialists. Thanks for your time, Kristen. Thanks, Jeff. This was fun. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME, offering on-demand medical education in a wide variety of specialties. This includes the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Online Board Review Course. Enter your boards with confidence, whether it's your first time through or for recertification. Learn on your own time and earn credit. Register today at ce.mayo.com dot edu slash pmr br online.